from LPM, Louisville Public Media. Support comes from Vision Zero. On foot or behind the wheel, safety is a shared responsibility. And Vision Zero Louisville believes zero roadway fatalities is the only acceptable amount. Their mission is to create safe roads by design, engineering solutions, and education. More information at visionzerolouisville.org. Good morning, fellow babies. Now, if you don't live in Louisville, or you've never listened to WFPK, the station here where I work, and that's most of you, uh, you almost certainly have no clue uh, what that means or, or why I open my show with it. But I'm going to tell you. And no, it doesn't have anything to do with WKRP in Cincinnati, even though it was originally inspired by that. It was uh, one of the catchphrases of James Bickers. He was a longtime uh, former colleague here at WFPK and Louisville Public Media, and he passed away uh, late last week. It happened suddenly, so as you can imagine, everyone here uh, felt it pretty, pretty heavily hit us hard. James was an amazing guy on a lot of levels, but one thing that really stood out was his ability to hold a conversation. He had an interview show here for a while, and I thought, you know, what better way for me personally to to pay tribute to James than to uh, run one of his interviews this week on the guest list. So that's what I'm doing. This is from 2003. If you've been listening since the After Dark days, you've probably heard this. Uh, it's an interview he did with Ray Harryhausen. When when Harryhausen passed, I, I ran this interview on After Dark, and I'm doing it here today to pay tribute to the other half of 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 this this duo here in conversation. So here it is. James Bickers interviewing Ray Harryhausen on the guest list. We're going to miss you. Hi, I'm James Bickers. Welcome to On Second Thought. My guest today is Ray Harryhausen, one of the giants of American cinematic history. Influenced at a very young age by the classic film King Kong, Harryhausen would go on to revolutionize movie special effects. For his first job in film, he ended up working alongside his mentor, King Kong creator Willis O'Brien. The movie they worked on together was Mighty Joe Young, the first of many monster movies that Harryhausen would produce. He is probably best remembered for his cinematic interpretations of stories from mythology and classic fantasy literature, titles such as Jason and the Argonauts, The Golden Voyage of Sinbad, and Clash of the Titans. His visual style is unmistakable and has aged extremely well. In an era of computer-generated imagery or CGI, his eerily animated skeletons, Greek gods, and hydras are still compelling. You know, I watched, um, I rewatched Jason and the Argonauts last night. Oh yeah, uh, which which is a movie I've loved my entire life, and and I realized one of the things that I love the most about your films, and that is the idea when you're watching one of your films, you feel like at any given moment, 
any given thing in the picture could come to life. Oh, my. <laughs> Good. Anything. The rocks, the trees, anything could become either a friend or a threat in a moment's uh, notice. Uh-huh. That's, how, uh, how do you feel about that? Because you populated these things so fully. Yes. Well, I, I, was, I remember as a child I saw an old silent film of a sculptor who uh, was sculpting something. This big statue fell over on top of him. Mm. And uh, that always left a big impression. And then I, <laughs> I, I read a lot about the uh, telekinesis and uh, uh, moving objects by your mind. And yeah. uh, I tried to incorporate that into uh, these uh, particular legends that we were dealing with. Yeah. You're, you're credited with inventing stop-motion animation. Well, I, I'm not. Right? I didn't invent it, actually. Yeah. Uh, my m- mentor, Willis O'Brien, he was the first one, I think, in America to uh, actually make stars of dinosaurs. In 1915, he did his first experiments, and uh, then he made The Lost World in 1925. Mm-hmm. And very few people remember who starred in the picture, mm-hmm. but they do remember the dinosaurs. Yeah, yeah. So uh, he made stars of these animated characters, and of course King Kong was his greatest triumph. Right. And I had the great pleasure of working with he and Marianne Cooper on uh, Mighty Joe Young. I became uh, Willis O'Brien's assistant because not many people knew about stop-motion animation. Yeah. When you watch an old stop-motion film today, I was just discussing this with another another person that works here who's, who's also a fan, and we both agree that there's, there's an eeriness to it. There's something that is so much more unsettling about the, just the, the way it looks, the tactile look of it, from the most picture-perfect digital effect. It's, it's so much more unsettling and eerie. Why do you think that is? Well, I get a, a lot of fans say they prefer our material to, uh, uh, to the present computer generation, which tries to imitate life, you know. And I, I think in fantasy, if you try to uh, make it too real, you lose the whole point of fantasy, and uh, King Kong, I remember when I saw that, I didn't know how it was done at the time. I was 13, and uh, but I was awestruck by the fact that it looked real, and yet I knew it wasn't uh, John Gamora in a suit. Mm-hmm. And uh, you couldn't possibly have men in a dinosaur suit in that picture. So uh, it haunted me for a year afterwards, and finally I found out about the glories of stop motion, and... Uh, I haven't been the same since. Right, right. It, it's taken you, hasn't it? It really hooked me, and I started experimenting in, uh, in my garage with uh, armatures. First armatures were wooden, mm-hmm. and then I had graduated, and my father happened to be an engineer, and he uh, made a lot of the metal armatures for me. I found out you had to have a very complicated ball and socket jointed armature in these little figures. Now, an armature is is is, is the figure the that, gets, that gets animated. Yeah, yeah. it's yeah. a skeleton within the rubber figure, which enables it to hold a pose. Mm-hmm. And like an animated cartoon, you move it every frame when the shutter is closed and then take a picture. So it's a series of still pictures like the animated cartoon, but you're using a model instead of a flat drawing. So just to give an idea of what a what a painstaking process this appears to be, you have you have the models that as I understand it are mounted on a surface that have has little holes in it to hold them in place. That's correct. You yeah. take a picture, you move in, 
and manually move the thing a fraction. Yeah. Move an arm, move a leg, whatever. And take another to picture keep the and arm repeat. And leg and head in sync too. Yes. Yeah. So that was a big problem in Jason and the Argonauts in the skeleton sequence because I had to synchronize three men, three swordsmen fighting seven skeletons. Right. So that took four and a half months to do that five-minute sequence. And it's an astounding sequence, and I think it still rivals mm. anything that you're going to see at the Cineplex today in terms of, of, of the impact it has on you. Yes, and it, it, Columbia submitted it to uh, for an Academy Award, and it was completely ignored, mm. not even nominated. Yeah, I couldn't understand that because nothing like it had ever been put on the screen before. Yeah, yeah or, or really since, because I think of modern special effects, and you look at them and you say, oh, wow, that's interesting, and then a moment later it's totally forgotten. Yeah. But but scenes like the skeleton scene or the harpy scene in Jason and the Argonauts really have some staying power. They're still interesting to look at 30, 40 years after the fact. Yes, they're, they're quite old, most of these pictures, but yeah. I'm glad, uh, grateful for uh, DVD and laser and video. They revived all our old films. Yeah, yeah. And uh, Columbia has made millions of it. Now, I want to return to the, the mechanics of how it works for a minute, because I think it's fascinating. And I, 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 the four and a half months to make a five-minute sequence is, is staggering. When you're moving these little fellas, move them a little bit, take a picture. Move them a little bit, take a picture. How do you keep the flow? I, I guess it's, is it instinct knowing how fast they're moving? Because you're only seeing a fraction of it, it at a time. It finally becomes instinct. When I first started out on Mighty Joe, I used to use a stopwatch. Mm-hmm. I would sit, I had a canvas on the floor, and I would sit and go through the motion myself with a stopwatch timing. If my arm was down here, I had a, how many seconds did it take to move it over here? And that would give me a guide. But after you, you, finally, uh, after you do it many times, you you have a inner sense of how much to move, yeah. and uh, it becomes an instinct. You have to project yourself in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's almost like uh, telekinesis. You have to project your own self as though how you feel if you were inside that thing yeah. in the poses. One pose leads to another pose. That's why I always worked alone because uh, I found concentration was enormously important. And if you didn't concentrate, why somebody asks you the time or something that's liable to break your pattern of thought. Right. And I've always found that half the charm of of doing this, some people find an, uh, this type of animation tedious. I never found it tedious because I was always uh, waiting to see if I captured on film in the next day's rushes what I had in my mind. Yeah. Well, that was going to be my next question, is if you enjoyed it. And I guess the answer is yes, but it seems like it's such difficult work. I know. It's not everybody's cup of tea. Yeah. For some reason, I just happened to be attached to it yeah. uh, when I saw King Kong in 1933. And uh, it, it, it uh, I can't explain it myself. I just find it the most fascinating thing. Maybe I have a Zeus complex. Could be. Many of us do. (laughs) Or a Frankenstein complex. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, many of us do. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about the models used, because you had to be, I would think, so careful in the planning stages, because today, if there's a flaw in something, they just Photoshop it out. But, for instance, the skeleton scenes, you could see the, the, you could see through these things. So any, any joinery had to be well hidden, didn't it? Oh, yes. 
it was very difficult to hide a skeleton within a skeleton. Yeah. Because the, the skeleton had to have a metal armature in it, mm-hmm. and to disguise it, uh, when you have rubber on the outside to build muscles and the exterior, you can disguise the metal joints. But on a skeleton, it became very difficult. So I had to actually build the bones on the armature mm-hmm. with latex, uh, cotton dipped in latex. And I built the bone up uh, that way so that I didn't have to cast it because it seemed impractical at the time. Yeah. So there were seven skeletons in the scene we've been talking about. For people that haven't seen it, it's the it's the finale of Jason and the Argonauts, the uh, the the big climactic battle between the the crew of the Argos and seven skeletons that have yes. just been resurrected. And it's remarkable because the interaction between the the inanimate objects, the newly animated objects, and the actual actors. Um, the actors were swinging at air, weren't they? They, they, they had no were. idea what they were what they were doing. During or... production, we had a, a swordsman expert uh, to guide us so that it would look practical from a swordsman point of view. And uh, we worked out the the thing together. I would make little pen and ink drawings of what I saw in my mind, and then he would correct it by the proper swordsmanship. Yeah. And we had seven men with little numbers on their backs. Uh, one to seven, so that we could keep track when they moved, which should, where they were uh, moving. Mm. And uh, we would photograph that, uh, and they would rehearse. The actors would rehearse maybe ten times with these swordsmen. And then we would take the final one. By that time, they knew their positions and where to stop their swords. And then the final piece of film, we would shoot, and they would shadow box the... the uh, uh, men would be removed, and the actors would go through by claps like a ballet, you mm. know. Interesting. And uh, it it uh, was complicated, but we did it in sections so that it wasn't too uh, grueling for the actors. Yeah. What what did because this this had to have been kind of a new idea for an actor to approach that we're going we're gonna to swing it. Well, air, most actors have to have an imagination. Sometimes the leading lady goes home early and the actor has to make love in a close-up to a teapot or something. Yeah. Well. So they do have to have an imagination. <laughs> yeah. And uh, they most of them adopted it very well. I remember one actor uh, got so it got so complicated for him to r- try to remember where to stop his sword. He just sat down and started crying. <laughs> There's another scene in this movie that I that I, I think if I heard this piece of trivia right, the scene where the the two harpies are tormenting the blind man. That's correct. Yeah. And the setting where this was filmed is actually an, Testum, down a, in southern Italy. Yes. A five thousand year old. It was a historical setting that they let you climb temple. over with cameras. Yeah, and whatnot. beautifully uh, preserved, uh, restored, I guess. But uh, I did my reckies. I always went out. I do more than just uh, do the animation. I, I, I work with the writers on the script. I, I lay the whole thing out because we had to make pictures with a budget, yeah. uh, a very tight budget. And if the, the director went wild and said, we want the camera here and this is what's going to happen, it's not a director's picture because, uh, you know, the budget would zoom up in the air. Yeah. So we have to lay it all out carefully. And uh, the director's main job, it's not like a European sense of the word where the director rules the roost. Yeah. Uh, we have to lay this all out ahead of time or we can't do it for the, the price we do it. And uh, some directors resent that. But... Uh, 
basically, the director's job is to get the best out of the actors. And sometimes they don't seem to achieve that. (laughs) I know in some of our early films, uh, some critics said, it's a pity Mr. Harryhausen didn't animate the actors as well, well. (laughs) (laughs) which wasn't very nice to say, but I was flattered. But uh, it wasn't, uh, I I thought it was a very awkward comment for them to make. Yeah. You, um... When did you retire from movies? Was it the late 80s? 82. I, I thought Clash, I had had it. Uh, why, why did you retire? <clears throat> oh, there were a number of reasons, some personal. And uh, I just felt the type of pictures that seemed to uh, attract, they, that the heads of the studios seemed to think attract an audience were just not my cup of tea. Mm. You can't have an explosion every five minutes in Greek mythology. And I, mm. I wanted to do some more Greek mythology. So I thought it's time for me to retire. CGI, everybody says it's the greatest thing since the wheel. So uh, I thought, uh, how can you compete with all that hype that they yeah. spend millions of dollars on a picture? And we spent, uh, I think we did the Beast from 20,000 Fathoms for $200,000. Oh, my goodness. Today, you can't even buy a costume for that. No, you know? no. And uh, so it it just, there were a number of reasons why I felt I should retire. And uh, I got tired being in a darkened room by myself uh, for a year on end, and uh, other people go out and make three pictures while I'm still on one. (laughs) Right, right, right. How many times, I would guess it's been many, how many times in those 20 intervening years have you been courted to Mr. Harryhouse and come back and make one more film? Well, not too many. Really? <laughs> I'm not sure whether they miss it until recently. I, I seem to get a big attraction recently because uh, so many of these uh, CGI films seem to say they pay homage. Yeah. I, I knocked over the Washington Monument long before Mars attacks. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I was glad to see they rebuild it. Well, now that's that's an interesting comment because you do see the comment from from young film directors and special effects people of what an influence Ray Harryhausen was on them. Do you see your influence when you go to the movies today? Or sometimes, yes. Sometimes I see. Uh, the, the influence. Well, like Godzilla was a copy of the Beast from Twenty Thousand Fathom, mm-hmm. only it was a man in a Godzilla suit, right. and I hated anybody in a, a suit, including a gorilla. I right. remember when I grew up, we had John Gamora, somebody Gamora, and uh, his gorilla suit, and Gaggy and White Pongo, and they he would end up carrying native women off into the jungle screaming, and. Uh, uh, thank God King Kong wasn't like that. So yeah. uh, I, uh, I, I, I wanted to put on the screen these fantasy elements, and I think we uh, covered pretty much what I wanted to. Yeah. Why do you think you were so drawn to mythology? Well, I, I got fed up with destroying cities. I mean, how repetitious can you get? Yeah. I destroyed Washington. I destroyed San Francisco Golden Gate Bridge. I destroyed... Uh, New York, Coney Island, yeah. you know, and then Godzilla got on the, into the act, and I, I thought we must find a new avenue for uh, stop-motion photography. So I latched on to Sinbad Legends. I th- uh, m- the first drawing I made for the picture, a big illustrated drawing to show what could appear on the screen, 
was uh, the skeleton on the staircase. Now, if you had James Bond, a present-day hero or anti-hero, uh, fighting a skeleton, it would be comical. Mm -hmm. But a legendary character like Sinbad, where in those days people believed in magic and uh, the supernatural, uh, it, it was more acceptable. So that's how Sinbad came about, yeah. to get away from this mad monsters destroying cities. Yeah. Was was mythology something that you studied heavily growing up? Well, that was the next step from uh, Legends of Sinbad. Mythology, uh, I remember studying it in school, yes. The field of stop-motion animation. Yeah. You carried it, did many things with it. You've, your name is synonymous with it. Where has it gone in the time since you've retired? Now, I'm only aware of a few, of, a few practitioners of stop-motion animation in the present day. I think of the Brothers Quay. There's a rock band called Tool that one of well, the members Hartman is heavily... Animation, who did Chicken Run. Right, and, yes. And, uh, Wallace and Gromit, uh, yeah. Wallace and Gromit, yes. Right. Uh, they're puppet films. See, there's a big distinction. People confuse it because they say it's animation. Mm -hmm. uh, I worked with George Pal when he first came over from Europe for Paramount in 1938. That was my first professional job. And uh, uh, he had very stylized puppets, Cubistic, almost. Mm -hmm. The heads were turned on a lathe. The bodies were cut out on a bandsaw. But the the figures, he made 25 separate figures to make one step for the figure. Mm. And uh, uh, each, uh, and you ended up just replacing one figure. They were pre-animated, and you replaced the figure with the next uh, progression. And uh, that never appealed to me, but it did teach me patience. Yeah. I was glad I worked with that. But those are puppet films, obvious puppet. They're stylized puppets. Things like King Kong and Mighty Joe Young and the pictures we made, uh, we have characters that are part of the story and go through the, the story as a character, not as an insert or a, uh, an obvious puppet. We try to make you think it's uh, uh, Talos and some of these people actually uh, existed, yeah. you know, in that form of mythology. So <clears throat> there's a big difference between the type of films we made and the obvious puppet film. Mm -hmm. Do you think if someone were to do a film in the style that you were known for today, would, would audiences receive it well? I don't know. It depends on how it's done. Yeah. If it was done well, if it was something yeah, that you but, would look you at. Know, and... We had a nice theatrical quality. Some of our pictures were not appreciated at the time yeah. they were released. Jason has more appreciation today than it did when it was released. Mm. And the same with Seventh Voyage of Sinbad. Seventh Voyage of Sinbad got wonderful write-ups from The Hollywood Reporter and Variety and all, generally in all the newspapers. But uh, the Academy Award completely ignored it. But uh, I don't know. It, it's uh, whether people, it depends. Maybe somebody will come up and say, Eureka, I've invented something new. Mm -hmm. Stop motion animation, yeah. uh, you know, by having a character. But with CGI now, you can take the head off of one person and put Clark Gable's head on mm -hmm. a, another body and have them do... Do whatever you want them to do. Whatever you want right. them to do. So that's uh, the the new thing. I I don't know whether one can go back in time and and re. I seem to have been born in a period that that it, uh, it was very impressive. 
the awesome vision on the screen that we used to try to accomplish on in our films is no longer awesome because CGI can do anything. Yeah. And uh, so the the impressive grand illusion is now mundane. And you see it on a 30-second commercial, the most amazing thing. So mm-hmm. uh, how do you amaze the audience anymore? And that's why they have to disguise it so much with explosions right. and uh, things zooming into the camera and zooming away and eight-frame cuts and everything like that. Yeah. Those are all tricks to uh, deter your eye from and your emotions from seeing that there's nothing really there. That exactly. The story is forgotten and all you have are a series of violent images on the screen. And yet, uh, your films, and I thought this last night watching Jason again, story to the side, just, just the visual appeal of your films, produced a wow when you first see them, and then 20 years later are still interesting to look at. There's still charm to them. There's still oh, something I'm there. I'm proud of that. That was never anticipated. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Today's special effects, they certainly produce the wow, but within 30 seconds, there better be another wow or someone's going to want to flip the channel. That's what I mean, yeah. Why, with, with relatively simple tools, why did your work stand up so much better than a film with millions of dollars of computer power behind it? What's the reason for that? I can't explain that. Yeah, somebody else has got to analyze that Yeah, for. yeah. I'm not on a psychiatric what's, couch. What's your gut tell you? Is it the stories themselves uh, well, or is it no, the simpleness? No, I put love in it. And I think yeah. King Kong... The the big attraction, that uh, 60-year-old picture still entertains people, mm-hmm. and uh, people are awed by it when they see it on a big screen. You should never see King Kong or our pictures on a little screen for the first time yeah. because they lose something. It's a, they're different pictures when you have to look up to them Certainly. because they were made for the, uh, the dynamic visual image. And we were very, uh, it was very necessary in our films to have good music. I learned that by watching King Kong. It had that great score by Max Steiner, one of the first uh, dramatic scores, uh, Wagnerian type scores, uh, classical scores, which emphasized the audio. The audio emphasized the visual. And that's so important, and people forget that. Sometimes they just have a saxophone solo Mm -hmm. for a a, a most dynamic scene on the picture that has no relationship to the visual image. And people like Max Steiner and Miklas Rocha and Bernard Herrmann all had these visions. We all had love for the subject matter. And I think that comes through where computer is done by committee, uh, so much. One man does the basket. One man d- puts the skin on it. One man does this. Uh, they do some amazing things. The last uh, 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 film that uh, the Lord of the Rings with this little character called Golem, mm-hmm. Golan, uh, was remarkable the yeah. way they integrated it with the live action. So that looks like the next step. But uh, that had charm and character. Mm-hmm. But the average one doesn't. Right. When you look back on everything you've done, what's your favorite, your favorite thing, movie, scene, whatever? What what makes you smile the most when you think back on it or look back on it out of your body of work? Mm, I guess the Medusa sequence in Clash or mm. the skeleton sequence. And Jason, I enjoyed doing the uh, uh, multiple things, the more complicated things like the Hydra had seven heads that you had to keep moving in in synchronization. 
uh, Medusa had 12 snakes in her hair. You had to animate the tail and the, and the uh, heads and the, uh, her Medusa and her eyes and her arm and keep them all in sync so she looked relatively natural. Yeah. And that was, those are challenges which I enjoy. So you most enjoyed the things that would have driven most of us absolutely nuts to do them. <laughs> Why do you think I have no hair? I pulled it out. <laughs> You've earned it. <laughs> Mr. Harryhausen, it's been an honor to talk to you. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Support for LPM Podcasts comes from the Eye Care Institute and Butchertown Clinical Trials, where they strive for diversity, equity, and inclusion within their staff, patients, and clinical trial participants. To learn more, visit butchertown.clinic. Thank you.